Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Finally, after a year-long wait, the Hammer Museum's biennial Made in LA 2020, A Vision, is upon us. It opens at both the Hammer and the Huntington this Saturday, April 17th, and online and off-site projects by Larry Johnson and Khalil Joseph, Ligia Lewis, and Justin Leroy are already on view. My first guest this week is the sixth artist from the exhibition to be featured on the program. He's Buck Ellison, a photographer whose work often engages the social codes and excesses of whiteness. Living Trust, his first monograph, investigates the presentation of white privilege, often through staged and performed pictures, often through really funny pictures, too, as we'll talk about. Living Trust won the 2020 Perry Photo Aperture First Photo Book of the Year Award. Previous Man podcasts featuring Made in LA 2020 artists have included a program with Monica Maioli and Mario Ayala, a program with Chilla Mulady and Umar Rashid, and a program with Jacqueline Kiyomi Gork. We'll have links to all of those shows in the show page for this week's episode. On the second segment, Louis Sloan at the Sheldon Museum of Art. But first, Buck Ellison, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents Seeds of Perpetuity, album premiere and panel discussion on April 29th at 8 p.m. Central. This virtual at low-end event will mark the release of Seeds of Perpetuity, a never-ending live YouTube album of music by Eric DeLuca. Using machine learning and music information retrieval, a computer music program categorizes a weird discography of records released in the 70s written specifically to help plants grow healthy. This music is transformed into seedlings of sound that grow slowly into ambient rhizomatic textures. At this YouTube live event, DeLuca will moderate a discussion with friends Pallavi Sen, Autumn Wallace, and Colby and Huji on how seeds and plants work to inspire the critical and creative process. Virtual at low-end performances are an integral part of Bemis Center's sound art and experimental music program and are presented with lead support by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Stream live at YouTube slash Bemis Center. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Villa Museum or experience it for the first time, good news. The Villa reopens Wednesday, April 21st, and free reservations are available now. Explore Blooming Gardens, Antiquities Galleries, Roman-inspired architecture, and a major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins, which features stunning works from the Met, the Louvre, and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Learn about safety measures and make advanced reservations at getty.edu. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Tebow are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Buck Ellison, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. When did the historical study of whiteness begin to interest you? I don't want to say in utero, but I feel like it was a, <laughs> a stew that I was cooked in. I think a lot of the stuff that I learned, I learned before I realized I was learning it, a huge chunk. And then 
I think like a lot of white people would just realize that it's going to be a, what do they say this in Japan, an onion process where it's like you're peeling layer by layer and you're crying all the way. But no, I can't give you an exact date. Did you ever consciously study the construction of whiteness or was it something you kind of came to as you worked through it in in your work? Uh, Study is a strong word. I've definitely read books that have been recommended to me by people that I I trust. And then I think we were just talking about this, but I studied German lit in undergrad. So there was a lot of discussion about race theory related to whiteness and how that might have shaped the worlds of art history or culture production. Your recent book, Living Trust, award-winning and sold out, starts with lacrosse. Why lacrosse? That was something I had always been interested in visually. I thought it was a really beautiful sport. And then this sort of happens to me quite a bit with work, but it feels like you stumble upon something. And the more that I researched it, the more I realized, like a lot of things in American history, there was a a darker underbelly to what we see. And I kept digging there. And and just a lot of the threads that I've been exploring in my work sort of come together in this. And yeah, we can talk about its history, but for the book, I thought it would be a great way to start this project. So as a sport, lacrosse originated in indigenous America, particularly in the what what is now the northeast of the United States. And in the book, both in pictures and in text, you chart how it migrated into waspy, upper crust, mid-Atlantic, northeastern culture. I don't know if culture is the right word, but how it became a practice embraced by northeastern whites, even as they culturally dispossessed Native Americans of it. Am I am I summarizing that about right? Yeah, beautifully. So once that interested you, how did you decide to represent it visually, both in pictures you made and in pictures you referenced? It was a long process. It was really difficult to be able to. So I wanted to shoot at one of, they call themselves the eight schools league, but it's these sort of boarding schools on the East Coast that we've all heard about. And I think in a very literal way have educated the dominant classes since we founded Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. They were made to prepare men to go to these what were then seminary schools. And these are big institutions. They have press departments. No one was particularly interested in my project for (laughs) probably good reason. And then, of course, the connection came through the art world. So these were shown at Liston in Basel. And I cannot tell you the amount of people that came up to me who had played lacrosse at one of these boarding schools. And this comes up again and again in the work. And that's a really important aspect for me is this mirroring or legibility question. I mean, you mentioned that to me earlier that you felt guilty for laughing at some of the things in the pictures and that I don't want anyone to feel guilty, but I do think it's one thing that these pictures can do is sort of investigate the art viewing public, right? And what I've been sort of surprised when talking about this work, it's now four years old that I've never once had to explain to anyone really what this is. Everyone seems pretty intimately familiar with Hotchkiss and Taft. At least, of course, it's a self-selecting pool, people that are approaching me to talk about it. But I approached these two particular schools because of their history. So Taft is, of course, 
related to the political dynasty, presidents, senators, etc. And then Hotchkiss is a bit more interesting. But in looking at the history of that school, you can also sort of look at the history of how Native Americans were dispossessed from their land. So it was founded by Maria Hotchkiss, who was the ex-wife of, I believe his name was Henry. Don't have that at the top of my head. Anyway, he owned a large munitions company. They also made all sorts of other stuff. At one point they had a car, but their revolving munitions were used at the Battle of Wounded Knee in a pretty decisive way. So in quite a literal way, similar to the Winchester dynasty, we have sort of decimation of this population through weaponry making way for the founding of this school, right? So a viewer opening the book will be immediately confronted with these pictures of young women playing lacrosse. The two schools, as you mentioned, are Taft and Hotchkiss. What listeners may not know is that the uniforms of Taft are red and the uniforms for Hotchkiss are white and blue. Was that a happy accident or was that core to your interest, concept, presentation, all the rest? It was a happy accident. I mean, that color scheme from what I had to choose from, it was a sort of collegiate red that it's, I think they even call it Yale blue. Hotchkiss was founded to send men to Yale directly. So that kind of Navy. And then I think Deerfield would have been a forest green, but I really wanted to pick these two schools and just focus on one game because of the history of the two schools. And then also thought there was something interesting in a lot of my work is staged and I think of it sometimes as almost like documentation of a private performance that I set up. And I thought this game is already so staged and ritualistic and that has these sort of ghostly shadows of the people that were here before that played it before white people came. Right. So I wanted to just focus on that one 60 minute span of gameplay. So in terms of the overall arc of the project, did the lacrosse pictures come first in the middle near the end? They were the main impetus for making a book. Um, so I got a grant from the German government to do this project, which is incredible. An American artist making work about the history of America funded by the German government. And part of that piece was to make a publication. But I also thought this kind of work really lent itself to it deserved it even required textual support. And like you mentioned, there's lots of images that show sort of trace this history, right? Because it's a really long, complicated and messy one. And even now we still have Native Americans who play lacrosse in their own league in a way that is much closer to the way it would have been played 300 years ago. And then we have this sort of Collegiate lacrosse, which continues to attract mostly, this is really well-documented, white players from, I think it's households with incomes of over $100,000 a year. So it's very, uh, um, it's often even used, I think, by small colleges to recruit kids who will not require scholarships. This sort of also came to light. Was this all this year, this college admissions thing? Is it also 2020? <laughs> but yeah, these things, I, I think that's really, it's also a piece of this project that Nothing is neutral, right? Playing this sport and the expensive equipment and the, the space that it requires to play, that comes with its own history. 
I think that's interesting about the German government. It is German intellectuals more so than anyone, any other single point of origin who developed the racialization of whiteness and from whom Americans such as Ralph Waldo Emerson got ideas that they they brought here and kind of mashed up into American Anglo-Saxonism. I asked about whether lacrosse was first because it's in the lacrosse section of the book that you introduce the long-running act that will be the, the Bush family, uh, the George Herbert Walker Bush family. How and why did you get interested in the Bushes as part of your air quotes story? And why did you decide to make them part of your narrative slash project? I think it's, again, they're just really, uh, they are sort of in the background of everything. I mean, later I, through this sort of heavy research into the DeVos family, and they have been supported throughout their career by the Bushes. But I think the Bushes are also a really good example of this American appeal to the middle and the way that we, we are sort of dominant ruling class white people can sort of fall back on these like sort of performance of middle class values as a way to disguise inequality, right? So the Bushes are one of the oldest dynasties in America, extremely blue blooded, generations have been educated at Andover. And yet, I think throughout his presidency, at least George W. Bush, you know, was very famously sort of painted himself as this cowboy, right? This Texan. And there is some truth to that narrative, but. And, and when George Herbert Walker Bush ran for president, he had his campaign or his campaign told people how much he loved pork rinds. And of course, he'd never had a pork rind. He didn't even know what they were. <laughs> I love that. Well, there you go. That's exactly, that's all you need to know. Well, speaking of performative, I couldn't help but notice that your your picture, Eric with Kitty, Blackwater Training Center, Moyoc, North Carolina, 1998, which is a historical reenactment, if you will. You've hired a model to play Eric Prince, the DeVos family member who, who founded Blackwater, uh, the paramilitary contractor, is in the book two pages away from a sheet of George H.W. Bush stamps, which is like maybe my favorite three pages of the book. In between them, by the way, is um, kind of a twilighty photograph of three golfers. Well, it's, it's titled Dick, Dan, Doug, The Everglades Club, Palm Beach, Florida, 1990, which is full of jokes, including the golfer I'm choosing to think of as Dick is urinating on the green. And pictorially, pictorially, he is more or less urinating right into a can of Michelob Ultra, which is also a beer joke. Uh, <laughs> You're giving me too much credit. That's really funny. I never thought of that. Really? <laughs> well, of course, I thought about the, the urination in the Michelob Ultra. That was a, we spent months on that. But um, I didn't think about it is really going into the can there. Yeah, so that's Dick DeVos who's urinating. That's Betsy's husband ah, with his two brothers. And they're wearing red, white, and blue, of course. There's a lot of red, white, and blue here. There's a lot of red, yeah, in the book. And yeah, just to wrap this, like make this tidy, we should say that. So the DeVos's own Amway, which is a has been sort of always poised to be called out as a multi-level marketing company. It's always skirted that. One reason they may have been successful in doing that is every president, except for Obama, I think since Gerald Ford, has spoken at an Amway convention. So the George Bush, George W. Bush spoke at the funeral of their father. So the families are very close. And then Eric Prince, Betsy's brother, she was born 
Betsy Prince interned for George H.W. But Herbert Walker Bush out of college and he left because it wasn't conservative enough. He was upset that they were meeting with gay rights and clean air advocacy groups. So just that sort of points to what Mr. Bush, his involvement with his family. You know, while we're on Dick, Dan, and Doug in in this picture, uh, uh, which we'll have an image of on manpodcast.com, of course, it is a, a carefully composed picture, not just because of the visual joke of urinating Dick and the can of McUltra. You know, any art lover who looks at this photograph is going to start racking his or her brain trying to think of the painting from which it comes. Did you figure it out? No, I didn't. But I got, I mean, I, I'm, it's got to be like, it, it's Dutch Golden Age and it's like Avercamp or probably a, a, a painting of, of Kalth being played on frozen over canals. That's as far as I got. Am I warm? Mm-mm. I actually can't take credit for this. I, I showed it to a friend and it's, uh, it's Poussin. It's the Arcadia Eigo painting. It's worth having a look. Flipped, if I were to take that and flip it in Photoshop. Well, how did you think through the composition of many of the staged pictures? I mean, I know that, that there's a relationship between the, your pictures and stock images, but they're also composed really mindfully. Did you start with a sheaf full of paintings that you considered, or is it, was it less strict than that? It's less strict, and I think even what's been more interesting for me to sort of interrogate through, right? Like, I'm picking up this camera. I'm by no means subscribed to this mythology that it's an extension of my eye, but I'm shooting. We often shoot for a long time. So this was set up with four actors. I think we shot for four hours, and I'm always surprised how I take these photos and then and maybe this comes through more in the editing process, but whichever one I end up selecting that I think this sort of it interrogates my own whiteness or my own training as an artist. But I'm always like, oh, these without wanting it to, these always come back to a canon of Western painting. And I actually try to sort of actively avoid. I think that's a, a bit too easy of a trick to sort of every photo you make is based on a painting and then it's automatically already. That seems a little, I'm not comfortable placing myself in art history that way. I have done that on occasion where it's just too good to pass up like the John Curran painting. But yeah, I think that's something Tina Barney talks about this quite a bit, which I love. She's a great reader of paintings, but she talks about how it's certainly not a neutral act to me picking up a camera. Let's just say that. Well, as you can well imagine, as I'm sure you're tired of talking about, Tina Barney was certainly in my notes to bring up. How has her looking at the waspish Northeast informed your meaningfully different investigation of whiteness? I mean, I love those photos, of course. I think she's great. I've had the fortune of meeting her a couple times. It's not that I don't see it. I understand that we're looking at the same subject matter. I just think we're, when I hear her talk about it, she really is interested in documenting her family and friends. And I think she even describes like a way of life that it's vanishing. I'm not so sure that it's vanishing. And I, I don't really, yeah, I guess for the viewer, they probably look like the same kind of picture because it's about the same kind of thing. I just, uh, I would, I would, I would say no. I, I mean, at least not for me. I mean, her approach is anthropological and documentary, and yours is immediately, obviously critical. Right. 
And I really admire that about her work. I think actually it's really, I'm really uneasy with my criticality being consumed by the same class that it's critiquing, right? And I think that's often too too readily available for consumption from artists. So I think it's often like a lot more exciting and has even more critical potential when things are presented as more ambivalent or yeah, with Tina's work, like jury's out. No one really knows what she thinks of the subject. I mean, the pictures certainly, I think do, they do everything that they need to do. There's really no explanation necessary, but I really admire that about the work. You know, a moment ago, we were we were talking about stock images. Are there analogies between privilege and aristocracy and stock images and the way they work that interest you? Yes. And maybe we need to speak about this a bit more broadly. But if we look at commercial image production in a broad way, I'm always taken aback again and again by how pretty extreme wealth is presented as middle class movies or television stock images and i understand why that might be but i think we get desensitized like just watching a movie and what's presented as a a normal single family home is you know 10,000 square feet multiple stories malibu with the pool and that sort of goes unchecked more often than i think we perhaps it should in that yes so i think there's a relationship between those representations and what we're talking about. Yeah, kind of like how when Friends was a sitcom on television, people did notice, I guess, in that instance, how no one could live in New York as they did on the salaries they presumably made. Of course, right. Yeah, but that hasn't gone away from television. And that, that seems harmless on one level, but then we think about the sort of erasure of the middle class and really we have more inequality now than we had during the Gilded Age. Like there is something nefarious and potentially like politically helpful to present these things as normal middle class trappings when they're really not and they're not attainable for statistically like the majority of the US population, right? We were also talking about painting traditions a moment ago and how your compositions, even if they don't riff on them directly, certainly are happy to have a painting-like feel. Are you, in being willing to do that, arguing for a relationship between those mostly European painting traditions and the construction of whiteness? I don't think I'm qualified to make that kind of argument, no. But you won't mind if critics do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's something I, that's the whole point of you guys. I just, I couldn't possibly say that I'm doing that actively. So one of the things about this book and this body of work, as I've seen it in installation shots of Made in L.A., and I'll say that we are taping this before Made in in L.A. is opened to the public as we are taping this, it is closed for reasons related to the pandemic and Los Angeles County Health Department orders. But one of the things that happens across the body of work is that there are relationships between pictures that almost reinforce the idea that the entire body of work is a narrative. So, for example, in Untitled Christmas Card Number 8, which is a Christmas card-style photo of of a very white family, a well-dressed family includes a guy sitting in the lower right who is, for no obvious reason related to a Christmas card, holding an orange peel. And elsewhere in in, in, in the book and in the body of the, w- the work, 
There is a section on still life, and I believe the first picture in that section is a still life of orange peels that references, among other things, the way orange peels are are kind of youth sports halftime food. Oh, I never thought about that. Really? Yeah. I mean, of course, I ate them growing up. They're always cut for us, though. Well, what about extending the orange peel, for example, across the body of work here, if you will, was useful to you as a strategy? So in the still life husbands that you're talking about, uses these orange peels that were so strange. They sold them in Germany where I was living at the time, and they're wrapped in paper. And the paper says, unbehandled, or never been touched. And they were these really expensive oranges for real investment on my student budget, maybe like $8 an orange or something. But the fruit seller was telling me that they were worn by, or they were picked by people who wore gloves. So this sort of strange distancing from labor labor and that sort of fetishization of that on some level, you were the first person to touch this orange. And then that's sort of ironic because it already is wrapped, right, by this peel. And then I wanted to contrast that with, there's an image from a brochure from a boarding school of boys playing rugby and they're sort of locked in this embrace in the image. And that those sort of questions of closeness and distance and who we might touch and we wouldn't, of course, now all the more present. Yeah, and one of the young men's hands are, are, are wrapped, which is, is a visual rhyme. Wrapped in tape, wrapped in athletic tape. So I didn't think about that being a halftime snack, but you're totally right. That works really well. And I was interested in that image because I had been reading, and this is echoed in the lacrosse body of work, that a lot of the language of corporate America borrows from organized sports. So we have leadership and team and captain and that in some ways these sort of sports prepare you to be a better or it's not in, in some ways they're often marketed as such that they would prepare you to be a better leader or businessman and so the rest of the still life that's also why it's titled husbands are business cards of frankfurt businessmen and i thought also for me it's sort of funny to think about then husbands is plural there and then moving to Christmas card number eight, that was at some level a practical thing that we shot these all day and the poor kid who's in the photos was not having it by the end. <laughs> you can't even tell he's a kid almost. <laughs> we gave him an orange, but I was, of course, thought, oh, that's, it's also really important just to move the eye around. You need that color there and that lower right hand corner. So it's often like a pretty practical solution. One other thing on husbands, the picture with the orange peels. Yes, the corporate logo or whatever you call it is in German, but those uh, the, the 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 paper in which the, pe- the the oranges were wrapped, red, white, and blue. It brings us back to America. So in that in 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 untitled Christmas card number eight, were you like I, I I get the practical reason you're just describing, but was it did it matter to you that it's also funny? How is it funny? There's a guy holding an orange peel and a very formally composed Christmas card photograph <laughs> wearing wearing a suit in front of a in front of two people wearing tuxedos and he's holding an orange peel. <laughs> yeah, I mean humor I think is extremely important, especially things like these that I don't think durable inequality, white supremacy are funny at all, but I do think that we can use humor as a strategy to sort of chip away and understand that, right? I do like that the that there's sort of relationships between the images also 
across the span of time. It's fun when they sort of relate back to one another. There, there's a photograph of a young gymnast doing the splits on, and I realize this is going to sound ridiculous. The picture is ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. Doing the splits on a cannon, <laughs> which, uh, as you were talking about the relationship between arms manufacturers and Hotchkiss and Tate and other New England prep schools, I, I immediately thought of that cannon. The picture is Sierra gymnastics routine. It's interesting you say that. So the Christmas cards were my response to that is my family, but cast through a modeling agency. So I have two brothers, a sister, the sort of young boy stands in for nieces and nephews and two parents. So that was a funny couple of months getting all these emails about how this guy would be perfect for the role of Buck. <laughs> but anyway, that relates to the canon because the canon is the only photo, I think, in the whole book that that is my cousin and that is my grandfather's house. And we used to take our family portraits on that canon, which is, and that stuff's so weird, you can't make it up. There, there's, you know, another thing about Sierra Gymnastics Routine I love that is also in the untitled Christmas card picture is the way you sometimes use little bursts of color to cross the picture. So in Sierra Gymnastics Routine, there is a, a an, in an interior plant in the lower left, and there is, you know, Bernard or Matisse style greenery visible through the distant window that kind of compresses space and really almost time as well. And in an untitled Christmas card number eight, that orange peel I keep talking about, haha, it almost, like when I first saw it, and I don't remember if I first saw it in, the, in, a, in a PDF of the book or if I first saw it as a picture, might have might, might first seen it as a picture. It looks like that orange peel is a piece of upholstery that has come off of I first thought it was upholstery from the chair to the man's right because the upholstery of the chair is the same color as the orange peel. It just kind of holds that section of the picture in a useful tension and a funny tension, I got to say. <laughs> well, while we're talking about funny pictures and, and the ways in which you are kind of tongue-in-cheek chuckling, clucking at at the class and privilege you're addressing pasta night which is you know got to be one of the funniest american artworks of the last 20 years and i can think of no better way to begin talking about it than asking why one of the men making pasta who is standing there with his sweater around his shoulders in kind of the clubby northeastern way wearing a blue Oxford, which is, of course, the, the shirt uniform of, of the upper middle class and above, is bare-butted. Why not, you know? I don't know. It just felt like one of those things you have to take. So this photo is based, it's one of the few times I did it. There's a John Curran painting from 1990 called Homemade Pasta. I don't know which collection it's in now, but it shows two gay men making pasta in their home. It's a great painting. And I know I read an interview with him about it and he was saying for him, it was exciting to make a work devoid of desire. So there's no buxom women in that painting, right? And I thought, okay, well, I can do that too. I don't find the specifics of my desire particularly interesting, but I do think that there's something interesting about upper middle class or not even upper I'm just dominant ruling class white 
homosexual urban dwellers. So we have this, we, I guess I have to include myself in this group. I don't know about the dominant class part, but there's a relate, it's an interesting relationship when a huge chunk of your quote unquote community throughout the world and in our country is facing like horrific persecution and oppression. And then you're a minority and yet you have no experience of that, at least in your day to day. Right. And I hear, I don't know, some of the most racist or insane things I've ever heard have been from gay men. So I, I just wanted to sort of include that in the conversation here. And maybe I'm being a bit mean, but that that was the impetus for no pants. As a picture, it's way too funny to be mean because it is, I mean, I, mean, I get the, the relationship to the 1999 current painting. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com as well. But it's also, a, a, you know, your picture, you know, John Curran's pictures can be pretty earnest, even as they're obviously illustrative fiction, if you will. And, you know, your your picture is especially the moment the viewer discovers the fleshy hindquarters of the gentleman in the near ground. So obviously not earnest. <laughs> the pasta spoons or, or uh, wooden utensils at the right-hand side of the picture are at kind of a pointedly jaunty angle. The the lemons in the foreground of the picture are have their leaves on them um, the, the, in a way that recalls the way that for centuries prudes have insisted that male genitalia be covered up by leaves. I mean, I could keep going. You get, I mean, even the even the windowed cabinet in the windowed kitchen cabinet behind the two pasta makers, you know, could could be read as a joke about about the picture plane. You know, one could one 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 could kind of keep going with this. So it's, I don't, I don't know where this picture came in your making the images that are, that are in the book, but it, it definitely feels like a, a summary or a certain summary. I'm proud of this guy. It was very difficult, strangely. I feel like I create these problems for myself, but it would surprise you. The hardest thing to do is to find a man. It was really important to me that they identify as gay and really, you know, that we weren't playing that. And that also they'd be of a certain age and that it was really hard to find someone who checked those first two boxes but was willing to show their their ass. So that took a long time. Similarly, the, the Kitty and Eric with Kitty was really hard to cast because of the political nature of the image. The stuff you never think about. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, there's not a ton of naked buttock in or buttocks. I guess they're probably both there in pasta night, but um, they're there. And you know, I'm sure this couldn't have been intentional, but I, you know, given that we've talked about the importance of sports to this body of work, every time I see pasta night, I see the second guy, the guy furthest away from the viewer. He looks to me like a young Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL. <laughs> I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I can't imagine that you would have cast for that, but I just, it's just, yeah. And of course, Roger Goodell is of the class. You are addressing with this work. He is the son of a U.S. senator from Connecticut and a man who makes, you know, 30 or $40 million a year, uh, mostly by exploiting the labor of black and brown men. I want to close by, by going back to what we talked about most at the beginning, which is whiteness as a subject of historical study and address. And for historians, especially for American historians in the last four or five decades, Whiteness has been a study of the past, mostly the 19th century, but also the 17th and 18th centuries. 
But when W.E.B. Du Bois effectively instigated the discipline of whiteness studies in 1920, he, he pointedly talked about whiteness as something he was addressing and examining and interested in in the present, in his present. Was Du Bois's construct of whiteness being something we should consider and examine in the present important to you? I think it's extremely important to look at and talk about. And I'm like surprised again and again that it's has been left out of conversations for so long while remaining, of course, like oppressively dominant and central. But I think, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge these things and talk about them and talk about them directly and look at them head on to make any progress. And we can't ask people of color and especially artists of color to do all that work for us. But it's a really, yeah, it's a certainly, I mean, I, all the work that I make makes me really uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable making it, makes me uncomfortable looking at it, makes me uncomfortable asking actors to participate in it. But I've always sort of used that as a sign that I might be doing something worthwhile, right? That there's some growth potential, certainly for me, but hopefully for the viewer as well, inherent in that process. Buck Ellison, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take 6 emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take 6 has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take 6 allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take 6 will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Lewis Tanner Moore joins me to discuss painter Lewis Sloan, whose work is on view in Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska. Sloan had a long, celebrated career as a painter, teacher, and conservator in Philadelphia. Moore curated a survey of Sloan's work at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in 2008. Lewis Tanner Moore, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. Lewis Sloan is Philadelphia through and through. He was born there. He attended the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, where he later taught and worked as a conservator. He worked at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, too. Why did he make Philadelphia so central to his life and work? Lewis Sloan was sort of one of those put-down-your-buckets-where-you-are people. He just sort of began working as an artist, as a, as a teen, really, and just continued. He, he went through school and was 
all through through grade school was sort of touted and ended up being mentored by, in particular, Alan Freelon, but by also by some other Philadelphia artists. And Alan Freelon, who is another sort of before Sloan pivotal figure in Philadelphia's art scene, had a job at the school district that allowed him some influence. And he you know, fostered a lot of curious and a lot of the uh, scholarships to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts that happened sort of after Lou had been a student were directed and nudged and pushed by Alan Freelon, who mentored people like Sloan and Paul Keene and other Philadelphia artists and was sort of the figure historically between Tanner, who was a Philadelphia artist who left to be a success, and Freelon, who stayed and, you know, was obviously, you know, substantially later, but stayed in Philadelphia and made his success there and taught and worked and was sort of the pivotal figure in Philadelphia's black community of artists between the group that was Claude Clark, Humbert Howard, and Doc Thrash, and the whole group that sort of were active in the Pyramid Club, looked to to Freelon and his group, or and his generation, of which he was sort of the primary example, along with Henry Bozeman Jones and Laura Waring, as examples. So, so Sloan is coming out of that tradition and found an artistic home in his real home so that he had the opportunity through school to be be much appreciated it, it's funny one of one of the paintings i had mentioned to you when we talked the other day was a painting of a, a kitchen chair that he did oh gosh i guess when he was around 14 or 15 and it's a it's a wonderful painting and it has even even as as you understand how great he he became as an artist, you can see all those seeds in it. And one of the things that's exciting to me in looking at that particular painting is even as a teenager, he found this wonderful perspective on a relatively mundane scene of a of some flowers sitting on a chair in his mother's kitchen that take it to another level. And that's sort of what he continued to do through his career, in my opinion, is to move things beyond the simplicity of the objects he was depicting. That picture is from 1946. We'll have an image of it on com. The flowers are sitting on a chair, which is on a kind of, I don't know, I think checkerboard linoleum type floor. It's playing with perspective a little bit. It's playing with the floral still life, of course. And, you know, I imagine there probably weren't a ton of still lifes being, floral still lifes being painted in 1946, given that year <laughs> in the U.S. Or, or in Europe. But it, yeah, as, as you say, it absolutely points to his interest in that which was that which was closest to him. One of the things that runs across Sloan's work is an intense engagement with his urbanity, with Philadelphia's urbanity. There are a couple paintings I wanted to talk about. First, maybe four, 
that run over the course of about 20 years. One is a painting from 1955 called Backyards, in which Sloan seems to celebrate, enjoy, revel in the city and the way a city is built. Yeah, and particularly a city like Philadelphia, which has this huge stock of, of row homes that are just built you know, right along with, with the shared back alleyway yard. And, and this is a, sh- a painting that shows that uh, sort of backstage scene of the small yards behind the row houses with each house having taken something of the character of whoever was choosing its its colors and the content of the yard to just give him an opportunity to play with the design of the space and the laundry in the yard and the supports to the windows are all sort of there just as you would sort of see them if you were walking through the alley. And again, it's a a question, much like with that earlier painting of, of the kitchen chair, of finding a particular point of view into that world. And I think that's, again, what Sloan was so good at, was finding the right perspective, the right look, and the, the way to make the objects serve the paint and vice versa. The next year, in 1956, he makes the fantastic painting at the Sheldon, Self-Portrait. In 1956, the suburbanization of white America is being massively enabled by, this, by the federal government. Here is Sloan showing himself in front of row houses. The row houses are red, white, and blue. Um, there's an extra patch of white behind Sloan, just in case there wasn't enough white in, in the American tree color in the row houses. This painting strikes me as about as pointed a political declaration as he could make. Yes, exactly. It's, it's as far as he's going to go. And it takes you where he wants you to go, if you're willing to, to follow. And it doesn't force you to go along. You can look at that painting and not have a whiff of any kind of political statement. But I think clearly it was there. And I think that's the thing with Sloan, that there's always, as with the Sufi stories, several layers from which it can be viewed. And I think that the depth that he brings to things is seen over and over again, and particularly in this painting, which is just a beauty on so many levels. The the, the nature of the portrait, which he doesn't do a lot of, and just the the strength of the line that he takes with the buildings. Again, he's has such a sense of abstract composition that he brings throughout his career more and more and more into his depictions of everyday objects. There's a lot in this picture that reminds me of Huey Lee Smith, both the focus on the city and its construction, but also the use of of red, white, and blue. Do we know if they knew each other, were looking at each other, were were talking with each other? Again, I'm sure that that he would have been aware of Huey Lee Smith's work since uh, Huey certainly had a a higher profile. I don't know to what extent that would have been at play in in their works, but 
certainly, you know, Huey was was very much somebody that people were looking at. And Lou, unfortunately, did not get that level of distribution or gallery space. It was just a, a challenge. I think he fell a little bit into the trap that some artists fall into in believing that their job was simply to make the work good enough and that if the work was good enough, the world would find it. And I think there's a, a sort of notion that promoting yourself is, is somebody else's business. Sadly, being, being a wonderful artist is, is a necessary but not sufficient condition for, for getting recognition, particularly for African-American artists who don't have real access to, to galleries. I remember the, uh, you know, the galleries that he was able to show in were treated him very well, but it was not, you know, at the level that his talent would have, would have called for. In 1975, Sloan makes a really different painting of houses of urbanity or maybe urbanity. It's a painting called Rooftops. And red, white, and blue are back, but he's using them differently and maybe commenting on the built environment differently. How might we consider what he's doing in the mid-70s as related to and perhaps different from what he's doing two decades earlier in the mid-1950s? Well, I think he's just continued to, to, and again, if you look at those paintings and the other one is Manny Young. Oh, yeah. Do you know that image? I do. The painting you're mentioning is Manny Young from 1959. It's at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Sorry. He just continues to play with paint in terms of conveying the tone and feeling of a place along with, with the imagery. And Lou used to refer to himself as a mood painter. And, well, we've sort of mostly talked about his urban thing. He's paintings. He's primarily a landscape painter. Most of his paintings are, are landscapes. And we, we used to joke, or I used to joke that in his landscapes, you could feel the temperature, you could feel the weather that was about to happen, and that he was just able to, with inference through paint, move you emotionally to the place that he wanted you to be. And again, you, you mentioned Huey Lee Smith earlier. And again, I think Huey is another one who was able to, with a minimum of activity on the canvas, convey a maximum of emotional information. And I, th I think that's something that they share. Yeah, you know, in many ways, they're very different painters and di very different individuals. But I think they shared that love for the craft. And, you know, they, they both were teachers in addition to being painters. And they both just really just just enjoyed playing with the paint. I remember there was a show years ago at a, a place in Philadelphia that was put together by Sandy Webster and uh, Barbara Wallace of called First in the Heart is the Dream, which was a collection of work by artists associated with Philadelphia. I was going to the show along with Lou Sloan and Paul Keene, who is another brilliant artist, if, if, who, if you don't know, people should explore his work. 
studied in Europe after the war and you know, at the Academy Julian and sort of made a wonderful body of work. But the two of them, and this is sometime after Paul had retired from teaching and before Lou had retired when they, he was thinking about it. And I remember them having this conversation about paint and what they were doing in the studio. You know, these two, you know, one man in his 60s, one in his 70s, having this conversation that one would associate with kids at the beginning of a journey and very much interested in in what they were able to find in the paint that was new to them and fresh to them and that allowed them to get closer to the visions in their head. And I remember distinctly that uh, Paul said to Lou, well, well, the good thing about being retired is I get to paint every day. (laughs) And Lou immediately saw that as, as an opportunity that should not be missed. You mentioned Huey Lee Smith a moment ago. They, I mean, they're very different painters. Sloan is much more interested, at least in his urban pictures and his, his pictures of buildings. He's much more interested in the picture plane, for example. And Smith is much more interested in bringing meaning to perspectival space. But they're both very interested in, in the idea of, of the American nation in a way that a lot of painters weren't in the post-war years, which is one of the reasons they're they're both so interesting to me. I'm also glad you mentioned Sloan's interest in non-urban landscapes, you know, kind of, you know, the great outdoors, if you will. They are rich paintings full of color and, as you suggested, feel and, and humidity. And we'll have a couple of examples on manpodcast.com, of course. Did he think of those pictures as sharing the concerns of his paintings of Philadelphia or were they a different track for him something else altogether I'm not sure he would have would have parsed it quite that way I think he saw them as part of his journey that that he was he loved plein air paintings one of the things he did at Pafa for years and years even beyond his retirement was to take folks out to paint from nature and he he went himself by himself. He went with students. He continued to do it right up almost to the very end of his life. And he was taking you know trips to the the Catskills with former students. And it was just that was what what you did was to paint. And the urban ones, I think, were more. The the rarity, not not that he wasn't interested in them, but that they were telling a particular story, finding that particular place within the city. Or again, I, there's there's a wonderful painting of the steel mill. They're all over the place. These paintings that pop up, but the the steady flow of paintings are the landscapes that over time become more and more about paint, become more and more about form, and become more and more a vehicle to allow him to explore the canvas in the way that an abstract painter explores the canvas. Some of Sloan's seascapes remind me of Barclay Hendricks's pictures, pictures that Hendricks made made in the Caribbean. 
They're certainly handling paint differently, but they are situated in similar spaces, if you will, and, and both of them paint the feeling of the air, the, the feeling of the humidity and the warmth of the space, or the sometimes the lack of the warmth of the space. Hendrix was one of Lewis Sloan's students. What was Sloan like as a teacher? What was, what was his influence as a teacher? Sloan is one of the rare teachers that I, I think every that had him and that didn't attempt to make his students paint like he did. You see such a range of people that studied with him, whether it, you look at Barclay, who clearly there is something that he took, took from that relationship as being mentored by Sloan. But you, you see people like James Brantley, who is a total, totally different kind of painter, but who still found great richness and, and, and maintained a relationship with Sloan you know, for another 25 years after he left the academy and was one of those people who went out painting with, with Sloan later, you know, later in, after Sloan had retired. And again, there's, you could just go down, down the line and he didn't try to get people to paint like he painted. He tried to get people to find out how they painted. And that's a tremendous gift. And, and you see many painters who just want people to learn to do what they do as opposed to learning who they are as artists. And I think that's Sloan's great gift to his students is that he, while he was absolutely part of that PAFA continuum that was concerned with craft and with understanding your materials, he was not trying to tie people into a narrow slot of producing art that mirrored his work. And again, with Sloan, you have this situation where he, as as building a career, certainly could have done a lot of things differently, but like like Tanner, like Huey Lee Smith, like a lot of other people who stayed their own course, didn't necessarily get the response from galleries that their work would seem to deserve. But it's a richer body of work than those bodies that simply try to serve the marketplace. Another one of Sloan's students was Elizabeth Osborne, and whose, whose work I adore. And, you know, she couldn't be more different from Sloan either. I mean, they both bask in... Well, she, I don't think she's his student. I think they were at PAFA together. Oh, and were then they? they taught together for 30 years. And certainly, you know, they, they were very good friends. And I, my, my belief, and I may be, you know, she may have been a student for a year or something at some point, but I don't believe so. I believe that they were students together and then both came to the faculty. And that when they were students, there was a little trio of, of people who were hanging out together that was Liz Osborne, Louis Sloan, and Raymond Saunders. And Raymond and Lou, again, and the three of them were all close and you know, maintained that closeness for many years. And again, if you think of Lou Sloan's work and Raymond Saunders' work, 
They're almost as different as you can imagine, but they both had tremendous respect for the other and, again, maintained that artistic friendship over the years, as he did with, with Liz. Liz, in fact, donated a beautiful painting of, of Liz to the um, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. That's, uh, I think it's Frost Valley in the Catskills from 1995, uh, which is a big painting, 50 by 74 inches. And it's just a, a gorgeous piece that uh, is now available at PAFA to be seen. It is, is an example of him playing with color. I, I would like to add a little something, if I can. We, we've talked about Sloan as an artist, and we touched upon the fact that, that he also worked as a curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and also worked privately. And in fact, I first got to know him around 1980 because he, he had been asked to, to conserve paintings that I was lending for an exhibition exhibition called Philadelphia Color Class and Style. And they were, so, so he was called in to do that. But he was the first African-American conservator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He worked on many great things, including the famous Tanner Annunciation. And he just sort of did that. And if he was, if he hadn't been an artist, that alone would have been such a significant career and such a significant contribution to, you know, things open up and how we begin to see the possibility for people. So he had that career where he was clearly not always welcomed, but was able to work through that. He had his career as a faculty member at Hoffa, where he influenced a whole generations of students. And thirdly, and in my, to my mind, most importantly, he was just a fabulous committed artist whose work continued to evolve, but who, wor who worked on the work that he wanted to make. He did not follow the trends, and, and much as is, is said of some other artists who don't exactly fit their moment, but they, f they had to find their own path, and that Lou was a quiet giant, a restrained, gracious individual, but so clear and so committed to the work that he made year after year and to the students that he taught. Lewis Tanner Moore, thanks so much. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.